Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Avid Kaur, and I talk about how you can start, run, and sell a bootstrap business without burning out. This episode is called Solution Validation Doesn't Happen in a Vacuum, How to Talk to Your Future Customers. Let's get started. As entrepreneurs, we are good at coming up with ideas. We envision solutions to the problems that trouble the audience we've chosen to help, and we think deeply about a problem. We mentally shape a product and see how much it would benefit the quality of life of our customers. Then we get to work and we build the prototype and we're eager to release it as soon as possible. But just like the problems we work on, we need to validate the solutions we create. Working on, a, on an issue that isn't critical for our customers is very risky, as it might result in a product that nobody needs. Working on a solution that doesn't work for our customers has the exact same consequences. That's why solution validation is an essential step before we dive into creating the actual product. Solution validation is best done in direct communication with your prospective customers, just like when you validated that the problem you were going to work on was a critical one for your niche audience. Call up your prospects, the same people you called up uh, when you validated your problem, if you can, or find new potential customers, have a chat and ask them a few questions. The main questions you want to answer through these calls is, will the solution solve the problem as expected? And won't it create more problems along the way? These calls will be different from the problem validation calls you did at an earlier point in the preparation stage. This time, you'll have to talk about your solution. As an introduction, explain what it'll do, uh, what steps they will have to take to use it, and how you envision it to be part of their work. You will need your customer to understand how your service would be used to set them up for the questions you'll ask to validate your solution later. In asking these questions, you'll be making some sort of a risk assessment. Usually, when you look at risks that could come from using a particular service, you'd look at the severity of impact, the likelihood of occurrence, and the probability of detection of each potential risk. At least that's how it's done in the industry. You would then list each of these risks and rank them by some sort of risk classification. While this is often overkill for single-purpose services, like the ones that are offered by many bootstrap businesses, it helps to make sure you build a reliable, side-effect-free product. To be able to find these risks, you will have to ask a few leading questions and pay close attention to what your prospects have to say. There are two significant perspectives I suggest taking here. One is workflow impact and the other one is jobs to be done. Let's take a look at both and the questions you can ask for each to validate your solution. So let's look at workflow impact first. Your service will never be used in isolation. It'll always be embedded in some sort of workflow one tool among many to solve a particular problem that occurs as a result of an action and that when solved will allow for follow-up actions to be taken. That's why you will need to find out how your solution will impact the existing workflow of your prospective customers. Workflows can differ wildly between your customers, but there's likely some common ground. Right? Your job at this point is to find out what that shared experience is and how your solution fits for the highest number of customers. A good question here is, at what stage of your workflow will you be using the solution? Answers to this particular question serve two purposes. They will validate your assumptions about where you expected your product to be used. That's um, the first point, like the first order implication. 
But more importantly, they will also uncover the stages of your prospect's workflow that you didn't expect your service to be used in. That's the second order effect. If you find a significant number of prospects mentioning a stage of their workflow that you completely missed when you envisioned your solution, you can immediately get back to the drawing board and compensate for that kind of oversight. Let's look at an example of this phenomenon that I experienced when uh, we validated a solution for Feedback Panda integration into a teaching portal software that our customers used to teach. We reached out to a handful of customers, expecting that our desktop-only integration would solve the job of creating student feedback right where they would teach, only to find that many of them did their feedback later in the day from their phones or from their tablets. We hadn't asked for which stage of the workflow they would need a solution in. We would have served them insufficiently. As a result, we built a mobile application as well as a desktop-based integration. That was our initial version of the solution. So we really needed to ask to find out that there was another stage that we did not expect them to actually use the product in. It might also be the case that your service will be used at multiple stages of your prospect's workflow, and it might be used differently at each of these stages. Knowing this will allow you to either focus on one of those stages exclusively or to make your service detect the kind of stage at which it's used and present a dedicated interface for that. At Feedback Panda, the needs of a teacher varied significantly depending on if they were initially creating a piece of feedback, like during their work, or if they were editing an existing student report later throughout the day. For new feedback, the focus was on the lesson content and prior feedback that had been written by the teacher for this particular student. And for existing feedback, the focus was on meta information like their rating and parent responses and statistics and these kind of things. Our display component for student feedback detected this difference of intent by judging what time and from where people opened that kind of component. And it offered different user interface components depending on the stage of the customer's workflow. And that worked out really well because people could then do the things they were most likely to do, speeding up the process of their work even more. So looking into the stages of their workflow allows you to develop a better and more in-depth understanding of how your customers handle their day-to-day activities. It'll show you opportunities for feature and integration additions to your product that you may miss if you only focus on the specifics of your own product and you don't look into the actual workflow it's being used in. Of course, you should still build a product that does one thing well and not a thousand things kind of Yeah, moderately, but it wouldn't hurt you if your service plays along nicely with the tools that are already used by your audience in the day-to-day activities. So let's talk about jobs to be done, because this brings us to the other perspective you should be taking. How does your solution impact the jobs to be done for your prospective customers? The concept of jobs to be done is a helpful framework to look at what ultimately drives people to do work, not what is, but what ought to be. People are result-driven and they use technological solutions. And they don't use them just for the intrinsic quality or because they're nice, but to actually get a job done. And it also means that for every problem that your customers are aware of and that they have, there might already be a solution in place to get that particular job done. That solution might be crude And it can take a surprisingly high number of different shapes, many of which you would not expect it to take. 
Just imagine a scenario like this. There's a computer in the data center somewhere that needs to be rebooted once a day. How many different ways could this job be done? Just think of all the alternatives. I have like six that I would like to present here. The first one is the one that I guess most developers would immediately envision. A developer could write a script to restart the computer after 24 hours of running. But in other businesses, an intern could just walk over to the computer every day after work or before they um, start their job and press the restart button. You could also imagine that the cleaning crew could unplug the machine once every night before they start their work and plug it back in when they leave the building. You could imagine that some remote management software could automatically log into the computer every day and reboot it using a simulated mouse movement and key commands kind of script. You could imagine that the CEO of the particular company makes it a ritual to do this kind of job every single day, showing that they still work on the small stuff and that they're still involved in the day-to-day activities. And finally, you could think of uh, the actual role of a system administrator to be created in a business to take care of this job and many other similar infrastructure-related activities. Some of these solutions definitely sound bizarre, but you can bet that all of them are being actively employed somewhere to solve a problem as simple as rebooting a computer. And I think this list also shows that the cost of solving a problem can vary wildly. Automating the job may cost a few couple minutes of your developer's time, but creating the new role of a system administrator to deal with these kind of problems now and in the future suddenly impacts the bottom line of your business significantly. That's why it's crucial to find out what's in place to solve the problem right now. You need to know what or who you are replacing with your potential solution. Every existing solution has a cost attached, and you will need to figure this out for your own pricing later on. And I think the example with the CEO going into the server room and switching it off as part of showing um, how they're still kind of in the business is supposed to illustrate that there is... um, that there are three kinds of costs. So the, the questions you need to ask um, is how much does the existing solution cost in terms of first time, second money, and third, even damage to what I call the self, like emotional or just traditional kind of perceptions in people. Because it's excellent if using your solution can save a business some money, but if it alienates the CEO from his self-perceived connection with the company, you will have a super hard time selling it to him. Understanding the emotional impact of changing from an existing solution to a new one is an integral part of the solution validation process. Another vital question here that is somewhat connected to this is, could the solution cause friction in unexpected areas? Because we're talking about essential, the cost of change here. And the point of this question is to find hidden dependencies. Imagine that you're selling like a CRM to a small logistics business, like a door-to-door delivery company. You're trying to replace the chaotic piles of Excel sheets and Word documents that they've been using to keep track of their customers in the past. And your solution will take care of this. But let's imagine you're carefully validating it. So you ask about, well, they're using Excel sheets in their business. And then it turns out that out of the 20 people you called, like 18 of them have an Excel plugin to deal with their fleet management and driver tracking. If your solution does not take into account this kind of integration in your customer base, it'll add friction to the process that they already have instead of removing friction. If you don't ask how far the current solution 
uh, to the job to be done extends into the operation of their business, you will miss critical friction points that need to be addressed by a solution that's worth switching to, right? If you want people to use your product, you don't want to make their life harder. So you need to anticipate where these kind of friction points are and you need to either solve them or circumvent them in some way. And sometimes this requires a lot of digging because the person you're talking to might just not be aware of how their colleagues use the current solution and how far it may have crept into other processes in the business. You'll want to talk to multiple people, preferably working with the current system, to increase your chances of spotting those risky friction potentials. So uh, these were the two main themes that I wanted to talk about here, which was jobs to be done and also the concept of workflow impact. Let's now talk about maybe how you can talk about risk in the context of a solution validation call. Because from your customers, your prospective customer's perspective, using your service should remove risk, deal with the jobs to be done more efficiently and make the overall workflow smoother. And to be able to assess that, so they can actually assess it, you have to spell out the risks clearly when you're doing your solution validation. Remember that this is not supposed to be a sales call, right? If you talk to people trying to validate your solution, you're not trying to sell them on your product just yet. You're not trying to trick them into ignoring risks to their business and to sign a contract. That stuff, I mean, the let's say let the actual sales comes later in in your business. But currently, you're validating your solution. So you can confidently sell it to your prospects later on that you don't have to trick them because you know that all these risks have been dealt with. Here now, you're figuring out how to minimize risk and maximize opportunity. So just spell it out. Engage your prospects in a lively discussion about their fears of changing the system because that is cost as well. Ask them for their previous painful experiences that they had with switching to new solutions and what if, what could have made these kind of transitions better. Think about the kind of guarantees you can give your users and your customers with your solution. Can you make it reliable enough to offer some sort of service level agreement? Are you even technically capable of guaranteeing this kind of stuff? Do your customers expect them? Right. Ask what kinds of guarantees the products they already use offer and how often they actually have to make use of that. Because depending on the niche, you'll find that some of these guarantees are just required by the regulatory environment, by law, and by the internal kind of due diligence of these businesses. While in other niches, they are just peace of mind kind of upsells that crafty salespeople have done to squeeze a couple more bucks out of people. So they're just expecting things to be service level agreements and being expensive, but there's no actual point to this. There's still downtime and it's still um, manageable. So the whole point is that throughout your solution validation conversations, you want to project to your prospective customers that you have a clear interest in solving their problems without causing new ones and to clearly show the risks that they may have when they utilize your currently suggested solution because you're trying to find out what you need to change to minimize these, right? And if you communicate this clearly in each call that you do about solution validation, you will create goal alignment between you and your prospect. You both want a great solution that makes things easier for the customer. So that would be the article. And let me just address it right now. I know 
that this is literally the most boring and least creative part of the whole preparation stage. These kind of validation conversations where you reach out to somebody and kind of <laughs> at this at the same time try to destroy your idea right you try to falsify a theory you try to um find counter examples to what you thought was right to see where your cool idea where your awesome project is lacking potential and where it might not work and it's super hard for people who are so driven to build something awesome to actively try and find the non-awesome parts of it. I think this kind of boring and non-creative work is only trumped by actually doing the taxes and bookkeeping at the later stages of your business. But it is also one of those things that if you do it even just a little bit, if you just have a couple of calls for problem validation and for solution validation, then you're already so much more ahead of your competition than anybody else because nobody likes to do this nobody wants to go through this nobody wants to talk to 20 people trying to poke holes at your own idea that you just had nobody wants to do this so we all avoid this we all try to not do this and i can say that with confidence because i've been avoiding it quite a number of times like i've been avoiding this in prior startups where we completely ignored both problem validation and solution validation. It's part of a startup here in Berlin, um, but we dealt with, we tried to build a marketplace for local food from the surrounding area. And we build a product that we never validated both the problem and the solution for. And it turned out that we had like a two-sided marketplace. One was farmers and one was consumers. And we never asked the question, for example, to, to ourselves or to the farmers, like, how is the farmer able to update their inventory, right? And you would say, yeah, they have a, there's a, like a web application and they can just like update the numbers, but the farmers aren't on their computers. They sometimes they don't even have computers. There's farmers here around Berlin that only have mobile phones. And we didn't even think this far. We just thought, yeah, we're just going to make a web app and there's a, the login for the people supplying, there's a login for the customers and that's it. Turns out that doesn't help at all if the farmer is in the barn or if they are on the field and they're dealing with their day-to-day -day activities. They don't want to like go home and go to their computer or they try to work through the web application on a phone where it's not built as a mobile-first product, which we also didn't do. So in all of this, we completely lack the perspective of our customers. And only in later projects have I have I forced myself to do this. And we've been doing this in Feedback Panda at many different levels and throughout the existence of the product, particularly when we released um, new, I wouldn't call it standalone features, but things like integrations and installable um, applications that people would run on either their phone or their desktop computer. For these kind of things, we had lengthy processes that involved a lot of interaction with other people, with customers that we both carefully selected and still try to get a good mix of different people. And it was really important to do this because if we hadn't done this, we would have released a product to thousands of people that they would not have wanted to use. And that is detrimental to the success of your business. So whenever we had something that we feared could potentially throw off the workflow of people or throw off their jobs to be done, we carefully 
explored it with customers that we gave either like a better version or just a description of the solution that was often enough to trigger these kind of conversation points. And we found out things that we needed to work on before we could finally release it to the whole crowd of customers that we had. So again, I know it's boring and I know it feels counterproductive because you're trying to destroy your idea, but this will set you apart if you do it and if you do it right. If you ask the right questions, still, you will have to listen to your customers and understand the things they only imply, things they don't say, because there might also be a lack of awareness, just like with the um, problem validation and problem exploration calls that I talked about on an earlier episode of this podcast. But it is essential that you have this kind of back and forth with the customers, particularly if you release something that has a heavy impact on how you expect them to do the work. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Avid Khal, A-R-V-I-D-K-H-L. And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me and the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever you subscribe to this podcast. And that'll help other founders and founders-to-be to find this podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their own bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.